start things out with a vocabulary lesson for you. Ooh, vocabulary. Okay, so have you ever heard of a word called getty corn? No. Can you guess what it is? Is it corn that's been grown by Getty Lee? <laughs> it's his corn fields. Getty corn. Here. Getty crack look corn upon and my I don't fields care. of Getty corn and see that they are plentiful. No, it's not. Oh. Any other guesses? I just went with Getty crack corn and I don't care. <laughs> I, I got nothing. Okay. So a Getty corn is a good-looking female that attends a Rush concert without having to be coaxed to do so by a dude. She is turned on by Getty Lee and not afraid to show it. Guess what you are, Maggie? I'm a Getty Corn! You're a Getty Corn! Why Getty Corn? Getty and Unicorn. Oh. Get it? I do. I am a Getty do Corn. You get it? I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, welcome to Rock Candy. Home of the Getty Corn. <laughs> home of the Getty Corn. You're everybody's favorite Getty Corn. Yes, that is me. And we are bringing you sweet treats from the world of music. Sweet Getty Corn facts, <laughs> apparently. Some street Getty Corn. Yeah. It's delicious. And yes, I am your number one Getty Corn, I'm Maggie. <laughs> I'm Ashley. What are you, like the number one per 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 corn? <laughs> Pear corn. <laughs> we'll figure it out. You know, we'll figure it out. It's fine. We don't need to have it really right don't. now. What about 80s and Alex honestly, Lifeson, though? I know. I could go either way. Honestly. I go both ways, guys. <laughs> She's by corn? <laughs> you know what? No, I sure. like that. Yeah. I like it. We're good. Yeah. I'm okay with that. But yes, we are continuing the elusive tale of Rush. Elusive indeed. Yeah. We're just very long. It's really long. When you told me what we were going to end on today, I'm like, wait, Ashley, what? how are you going to do this how in many three episodes parts? Is I think this? this is a 10 parter. No, no, we'll get through it all. This Probably. Is, this is our two towers of the Rush saga. The two towers, I think, is like the densest for sure. This is going to be dense. We're going to talk a lot about the music, a lot about the albums, but it's interesting. They've taken Neil Peart's drums to Isengard. <laughs> Every, like, 500 pieces. Just oh on God. one on each Urukai's back. Just like, fucking God, why are we doing this? All right, boys, looks like snares are back, back on, on the, the menu. menu. <laughs> and chimes and glockenspiels. And tubular bells. What? Who is this guy? <laughs> Do we still need to bring this to Mordor? <laughs> I don't want to anymore. This concert's not even going to be fun. Oh. <laughs> um, That's where you're wrong. Uruk-hai. And that's why the Urukai suck. Yes. Because they don't get rushed. That's why the Urukai suck. All right. Now we know. Yeah. You're right. We figured it out. Yeah. Oh, right. I'm also <laughs> drinking beer. I'm like... Let's just yeah. talk about Rush now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we got to talk about our beer. I mean, that's fine. It's actually really good. It was very expensive, so I'm glad it's good. Uh, it better be fucking good. Better be fucking good. <laughs> like, that was my biggest problem tonight at the beer store. I'm like, I mean, uh, this, I, mm, no. Everything's expensive. It's very expensive, and this beer store would not let me mix and match, and I think that's a criminal crime. <laughs> Criminals usually do crimes <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a criminal crime. <laughs> How dare you not let me mix and match my beers? You criminal doing crimes. Feeling like a criminal. <laughs> Fiona Applin all over the Fiona, fucking place. Fiona Apple bitch. But yes, I am drinking a beer called Fauna. It's a sour IPA with kiwi, lime, and hibiscus. Mm. And it is from Hudson Valley Bluey. God, I feel like we've drank a lot from them recently. Um, No. I don't think we have. Oh. So then did we drink of like a Hudson Brewery or something? I think Hudson Brewery. We went to Hudson Brewery. I mean, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, we didn't go to Hudson Valley Brewery, though. They're in Newburgh and nobody wants to go to Newburgh. You know, why? Why Newburgh? It doesn't no, need to why exist. why call yourself Hudson Valley Brewery? Like, y- y'all got to start getting more creative with your names. Yeah, like do. You're a brewery. You can name yourself anything. Why would you ever be like... Hudson Valley Brewery. Because people in New York City see Hudson Valley and lose their fucking minds over it. Well, I certainly don't want them at my bar. (laughs) So I'm going to call it like Trash Panda Express. (laughs) Right. right. So now we got the beer out of the way. Now we can talk about Rush. Oh, wait. We have to six degrees of beer this. Oh, yeah. So what was your what was your six degrees? Uh, There's lime in it. And yeah, and limelight. in the limelight, the universal <laughs> dream for those who wish to see. <laughs> sorry. Okay, sorry. Um, um, also, Fauna, because they have a song called Trees, but that's Flora. Yeah. And Close they have enough. some of nature. Oh, natural science. Natural science. Yeah. Six degrees of beer. Sure. Natural science is actually talking about like weather and stuff, but that's all right. Animals like weather. Yeah. Yeah. They're all part of the same environment. Ecosystems. Science. All right. Let's let's get let's on go, with this. Let's go. Let's go. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we left off last episode, the boys of Rush had just released Caress of Steel, and it was a commercial failure, relegating the band to playing backwater pubs for meager audiences. Their record company, Mercury, wanted to drop the band and wipe their hands clean, but manager Ray Daniels convinced them that if they gave Rush one more chance, he's sure they will totally write some radio-friendly hits and make big money for the company. He's got it. They're doing it. They're doing it. They're going to do it. Right there in the record. It's happening. It's happening, guys. Mercury was convinced and allowed Rush to record another album, but the boys still didn't have any money coming in. Which seems like a tactic on Mercury Records' part. Starve the guys out, force them to couch surf because they can't afford an apartment, and the pressure will force them to write a hit single with mass appeal. That sounds like abuse. Yeah. It's like (laughs) record companies abuse their artists. Huh. Hmm. Nah. But this is Rush we're talking about. Do you really think they just stop writing eight minute songs about philosophical concepts and Lord of the Rings with complicated riffs and changing time signatures? Yeah, right. They totally did, right? Absolutely not. What? In fact, (laughs) they doubled down. (laughs) They're like, oh, you think you think sleeping on a couch is going to make me not write a song about trees? No. Guess what, bitch? No. They figured that if this was going to be their swan song, they're going to make a record they want to make, mm-hmm. not what Mercury expects from them. They'd rather go back to working day jobs at the farm equipment dealership than compromise their art. Hey, they had a job. They had something to fall back on. Yeah. My Which dad honestly, owns a dealership. Of trees? What? What was it again? Farm equipment. Farm equipment. <laughs> he owns really a tree dealership right now. <laughs> Look, I bought a Christmas tree yesterday. I'm just really in a tree tree 
tree state of mind right now. I've been really into trees lately. (laughs) So in February 1976, they went into the studio to record what would become their masterpiece, 2112. Hell yes. They had been writing songs for this album throughout the Caress of Steel tour, laying down ideas for their most epic compositions yet. They brought in producer Terry Brown, who had also produced Fly By Night and Caress of Steel, and would work with Rush on many more albums to come. So this guy had an idea where Rush was going with 2112. He, he knew what he was walking into. Yeah. And they knew him. So yeah. they knew what they were walking into. And they gave him, you know, warnings, I guess. Warnings in that we are writing another 10 minute song. Oh, yeah. Actually, it's going to be more than 10, I think. (laughs) It was a fucking journey. Yeah, it was. Side one was one singular 20 and a half minute long song called 2112 that was broken down into seven parts. As we noted in the last episode, Neil Pear isn't so much a lyricist as he is a prose writer and the lyrics to 2112 are no exception. No. Like, literally just took a story he had written and put it to music, pretty much. Yeah. Like, there is no real, like... Getty, I think, does the best he can to, like, make it seem songish. But it is very much like singing a story over music. And he does a very good (laughs) job of knowing when a whole, like sentence needs to be sung at once i guess (laughs) or when to break up a sentence so it actually still makes sense within the melody he's a great syncopator sure (laughs) i don't know if that's the right word but it feels right but neil paints a goddamn saga in the lyrics Mm. of this song so let me take you on a journey i'm here the year is 2112 Mm. and we live in a city called megadon A group of evil priests that live in the Temple of Syrinx rule the land with iron fists, outlawing individuality and creativity, forcing everyone to live in a totalitarian society where everything they do is controlled by the priests. But there's a free thinker in the mix, and he finds a guitar in a cave, because I guess that's where guitars come from. (laughs) Now we know. Now we know. I always wondered. (laughs) Cave guitars, I mean. Cave tar. (laughs) He learns to play the guitar and thinks his discovery is magnificent, so he brings it to the priests. Predictably, they tell him he's a piece of shit, they destroy the guitar, and banish him from Megadon. He's so depressed that he can't live in a world where music doesn't exist that he kills himself as a planetary war begins. Shit's fucking dark. Wow. Yeah. Neil was inspired... By Ayn Rand. Once again. You don't have to even say it. By Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand's name all over this mother. All over. All over. Although he wasn't reading or referencing the book when he wrote the lyrics, when the story was finished, he noticed the parallels between the two. So he credited, quote, the genius of Ayn Rand in the liner notes to avoid any legal action. Yeah. Wait, does it say which uh, story it's based off? Anthem. Oh, this is the Anthem song. There is a song called Anthem. Oh my god, how many songs did he write yeah. based on? I mean, I think he was also in, he de- was definitely also inspired by the Fountainhead. Oh yeah. That was he That's was like everybody. He was big into the Fountainhead. It makes for a great fascinating story. Yeah, it makes for a great futuristic dystopian society kind yep. of story. Yeah. But applying it to real life 
is a bit much. Yeah. And I don't think that he did. No. He just really liked what she had to say about, like, really being into yourself, I guess. Yeah. You know <laughs> what? If the music thing didn't work out, Neil Peart would have been a great sci-fi fantasy writer. Oh, yeah, definitely. So there's that. Um, He definitely had a career writing books, and he did write sci-fi books. I did not know that. We'll talk about that in the next episode. Ooh. <laughs> The media picked up on Neil's Ayn Rand worship during the album's promotion, mm. and not many were too kind about it. Yeah. One journalist, Barry Miles from NME, wrote an article connecting Rush and Rand, but then blatantly said that Rush were forcing an extreme right- right-wing ideology onto their impressionable young fans. Which is not true. That's a bit much. It's a, that's a big fucking stretch. Yeah, I would... I would- Maybe pump the brakes on that. He then said that their lyrics, and specifically Neil's beliefs, are quote-unquote proto-fascism, and that they're Nazis. No. 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 Which is pretty fucking shitty, considering Getty's parents were Holocaust survivors. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Fuck you, dude. He, like, he, like, he wrote this paragraph that was, like, totally jumping to conclusions but he was basically like oh i get it so they think you know by working real hard you can be free and you know work makes free oh where have i heard that before oh yeah it's on the fucking gate to auschwitz (gasps) literally said that it's like whoa you fucking asshole like no did no one tell him I don't think so. I don't think he. I hope he felt very bad. He doesn't. Somebody was like, he does not feel bad. Um, Getty's parents, they were kind of, you know, they were their Holocaust survivor. Really? Nope. You don't care. Nope. Somebody like asked him about it later on, and they're like, "Do you regret saying that?" He's like, "I don't regret any of it. I still believe all of it." And it's like, "No." Wow, you and like, sir can choke on glass. I totally get how some people would think that Neil's like political beliefs are pretty right leaning mm. because they kind of were a little bit, but he wasn't right wing. He right. was 100% a libertarian, which isn't any better, but like I get what, I, I get where plenty. he's coming with the libertarian shit. The, the, there's libertarianism is a spectrum. Yeah. But there is very much a Venn diagram of libertarianism, too. And I think I could actually, at some point, have had a conversation with Neil Peart about his libertarian beliefs and not wanted to fucking murder him. He seems like a sensible lad. Quite. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. 2112 is the longest song in Russia's repertoire and has some pretty heavy themes, but they get a lot lighter in the second half of the album. I don't know. I will say, like, the beginning of 2112, like, around the overture. Tits. 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 That's the part. That's the part of 2112 that they would actually be able to play in concert because they can't play the whole thing, so they had to break it up. I don't know. Could you imagine if they're, like, we're doing, like, a nice intimate evening and they just do 2112 acoustic? Oh, God. (laughs) That's a lot. That's that's a sleepy time concert. I think that'd be interesting. (laughs) It would be great, but, like... I'd probably fall asleep if I had a couple beers before I I sat and watched that. That's not a beer concert. 
Guys, I just saw Macedon and Opeth, and I was falling asleep at the end of Opeth's set. So, like, Aww. I could probably fall asleep at the end of Rush doing all of 2112. We're just tired. I'm, I'm a sleepy old person. <laughs> so on the second half of the album, right out of the gate is A Passage to Bangkok, which is mm. just about the place places in the world that have the best weed. What? That's literally what it's about. <laughs> it's about weed. I did weed. not pick up on that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I need to go back now. The Twilight Zone is literally just about the TV show, The Twilight Zone. Yeah. <laughs> and the two sides of the album contrast quite a bit in mood, but somehow they still work together. Oh, like yeah. Side one's serious. Side two is pretty jaunty. It's all stuff that is going to interest their fan base. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like, they're here for the stories. They're here for the weed. They're here for the Twilight Zone? They're here for the weird old TV shows. Yeah. It sure. wasn't old back then. I mean, 50s? I feel like they were still having episodes like go up through like the 90s, but I could be wrong. Oh, maybe. I have no idea. Yeah. I've only ever seen one episode of The Twilight Zone, and I watched it in school. Wow. And That's we watched it because it was based on a short story that we read about a guy being hung from a bridge, I think. Oh. It was, seems like a seems like a stretch there for like your teacher. Owl, something about an owl, I can't remember. <laughs> Inevitably, the record company panicked when they heard the album. Like, this song is over 20 minutes long. What the fuck are you doing? So you weren't going to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I think side B of the album saved their asses because it did have commercially viable songs on it. Yeah. And I think the record company saw that. And they could also take shorter sections of the song 2112 and release that as singles. Yeah. So they released the album in April 1976, and guess what? It did terrible. Bombed. No, it was a huge-ass hit. I know, I was just being an (laughs) asshole. (laughs) Thanks in part to Mercury Records distributor Polydor, who launched a big advertising campaign for the album. Oh, shit. And this helped it get attention from a wider audience that may have forgotten Rush after the Caress of Steel fiasco. Hmm. It sold really well, eventually going double platinum, and hit number five on the Canadian albums charts and nice. stayed on the U.S. charts for 37 weeks. Oh, shit. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a really good. But, of course, the critics had some bullshit to say about it. Like calling them Nazis? <laughs> I, yeah. Pretty sure that's uh, that's yeah. peak assholery right yeah, there. Yeah, that's, that's probably the worst you could you could get. That's, like, that's fucking shitty. Yeah. Cool, 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 cool. Thanks, Barry. Fuck off. Choke on glass, Barry. (laughs) If they weren't ignoring the album, they passed it off as some nerdy bullshit. They would call them humorless and too serious while simultaneously saying their music was so cheesy it couldn't be taken seriously. Wait a minute. They wrote a song about weed. How are they taking themselves too seriously? I don't know. It's a song about the Twilight Zone. Like, come on. I fucking hate critics. They thought it was totally out of left field, but at the same time derivative. It was overblown and too complicated, but also music for babies. Not to mention the absolute slaughtering of Getty for his vocals, because that happens in every fucking Rush album. That's what he sounds like. That's what he sounds like, and it's not not bad. Have we not figured that out yet? (laughs) The band also got slaughtered for their new logo that appeared on the 2112 album cover. But that that's a great logo. It is. Some people misinterpreted the red five-pointed star with a circle around it as a pentagram, which it is not. But that would be sweet if it was. 
Could have been. Could have been. There are also some versions of the logo with a naked man turned facing away, reaching out to the star as if to resist it. Yeah. Yeah. What's up with that? <laughs> it's. Oh, hold on. <laughs> I know you're going to tell me, but I need to know. I was wondering that today. Yeah. To some evangelical Christians, it's actually a depiction of a man worshiping the symbol of Satan. Therefore, Rush were Satanists. It's actually supposed to represent like the the humans in the 2112 story that are resisting oppression and resisting um, the totalitarian government. Right. They want the guitar in the cave. Right. They want the cave guitar. Yeah. Everybody yeah. wants cave tar. Yeah. Everybody's here for the cave tar. Uh, except for the evangelicals, apparently. Yeah. Well, they're not here for anything except, I don't know, statutory rape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And money. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about it. Yeah. An editorial was published in the Daily Texan, a newspaper put out by the University of Texas in 1979. It was written by Jim Hanklin, a conservative Christian that held seminars on how the purpose of rock and roll was to turn people to Satan. It is, though, isn't it? Just imagine being these like three nice dudes from Canada who just want to make just music. Three nice Canadian dudes who want to make their music about yeah. trees. And people are calling them Satanists and Nazis. Nazis. They're sitting there like, fuck, man. What? It's it's a level of misunderstanding that is so incomprehensible and inexcusable. Like the journalist Barry Barry Miles, like he went on tour with them, followed them around to write this article for NME, and it, what he got out of it was that they were fucking Nazis. Like it blows my mind that people just see what they want to see so he's like hanging out with them yes and they were probably nothing but so sweet and nice to him yo barry again <laughs> yo barry we gotta talk we gotta have words yeah and by words i mean my fist in your face yeah catch his hands <laughs> okay so this jim hanklin dude He's writing this article in the daily texan in the article he cited the red star 2112's dystopian lyrics and the album's overall themes as proof that Rush were Satan worshippers. No. And Neil personally published a retort in that newspaper that swiftly cut this dipshit down to size. He basically said that rock stars barely put any thought or feeling into their work anyway, so why would they bother putting devil worship into it? (laughs) He also called them, quote, Grim-faced hypocrites who are stirring around in the dark places of life, hoping to find something, anything, dirtier than their own reflection. Neil, that was fucking fire. Um, His whole retort Mm. is on the internet, so you can look it up and read it. It's it's pretty good. Oh, my God. Mm. I can taste the fucking, like... (laughs) Just, oh, yeah. The disdain is palpable. It's oh, delightful. It's he also brought up a good point in the letter. These witch hunters are the ones screaming about how Rush worshiped the devil. So who exactly is corrupting the minds of the youth? The people who are just playing rock and roll or the people who are projecting devil worship onto them and telling all of their kids about it? Oh, it's not the witch hunt. It's not. You say it's not <laughs> Rush. That is 
telling them about devil worship. No. It's their own fucking parents. It's their own fucking church people. That's how that always goes, though. It's always yeah. like the authorities being like, hey, this is a problem when it's not a problem at all. And then it becomes a problem because like kids are dumb and they're like, huh, that sounds cool. I'm yeah. Do that. Like, yeah. Half the There's, shit that, like, kids weren't eating Tide, po- tide Pods until you said kids were eating Tide Pods. And then kids are like, well, I'm going to eat a Tide Pod well, now. Now I'm going to eat the Tide Pod because everybody's making a big deal. So I mean, like, I'm not going to lie. I have held a Tide Pod in my hand. I'm like, it's squishy and it seems like it would be fun to put in my mouth. I get yeah, it. It seems like it would make a nice pop if I chomped down on it. Yeah. Like, I kind of get it now. But guess what? I'm smart enough to know I shouldn't do that. I'm old enough to know I might not come back from that. <laughs> <laughs> My tum tum like can't oh, no. even handle like actual food? food, so <laughs> it's not gonna handle a Tide Pod and Mm-mm. survive. <laughs> Some of these people even tried saying "rush" stood for "ruled under Satan's hand." I'm done. I'm fucking, I'm leaving. <laughs> I don't need to be here anymore. But I think what? that's kind of badass. Like, I kind of want. If somebody said that, if I were in a band called Rush and they said that, I'd be like. Fuck yeah, it stands for that. You know, it didn't before, but but now it I does. Kinda like that because you thought it up again. And I like that because you thought it up. Yep, you did it. And Neil and Getty have made many comments about how they are at least agnos- agnostic, if not atheist. So the accusations against them were completely baseless. Rad. Yeah. Despite critics that don't know shit and conservative Bible thumpers that don't know shit. Audiences fucking love 2112, and that's what really mattered. Yeah. This was the turning point in their career and relationship with the record company. From then on, Mercury didn't fucks with them. Nice. They were like, we're taking you seriously now, so whatever you want to release, we're going to release it. Uh, As long as we got money piling in, it's fine. Yeah. I think eventually they started their own record company. I don't know if... Their record company ended up becoming like a subsidiary of Mercury or whatever. Oh, maybe. That happens a lot. But guess what the name of it is? Is it is it ruled under Satan's hand? <laughs> Should be. <laughs> no, it's Anthem Records. Ooh. I'll really stick it to them. Yeah. So now they were getting more eyes on them. Fashion became more important aspect of their personas. Oh? Problem was... These were not fashionable guys. No, I would never say rush and think fashion. Fashion with a capital F. Turn to the left. Fashion, turn (laughs) to the right. right. Yeah. You better work. A lot. They have to work a lot. (laughs) They still rocked a toned down version of their early days with bell bottoms and scarves, but it was far less flamboyant than before. Nobody's wearing pink sequined three-piece suits or anything they were really pulling that off though they were they were just t-shirt and jeans guys and they felt they needed something more to stand out from the crowd they found themselves in san francisco for some reason or another staying in the city's japanese district their search for some new threads led them to buy kimonos thinking that they were just the thing to make them look really cool on stage Yes, please tell me they just put the kimonos over their t-shirts. And- yes! yes! Oh my god, it's terrible and I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so majestic. And it's oh. like fresh out of the shower. Oh, but also still in my t-shirt and jeans. Do you like prog in a lounge form? <laughs> 
Wait a minute. Were they like legit kimonos too? Like the silky, beautiful, long yes. ones? <gasps> yes. So it wasn't even like a bullshit tourist no. one. No. <laughs> they were nice. Not even like. I mean, they might have been bullshit tourist ones, but they were nice. They were like satin and silk and like, yeah. They were nice. They were nice. They had patterns on them and shit. I mean, that most pretty much all kimonos too. I don't. I'm sure they didn't really give a shit. They probably just went into some store that had kimonos and they were like, Oh, there's a dragon on this one. That looks fucking sweet, man. These would fit great. Looks sweet, eh? Huh? It looks sweet, eh? Yeah. I got lions on this one, eh? (laughs) Take off, hoser. (laughs) I'm sorry. But I'm not. So sorry. Sorry, Canada. I love you. That's why I try to talk like you, eh? Uh, anyway, this is what Getty called their absurdly prophetic robes phase. <laughs> Love it. If you want to see a perfect representation of the robe phase, just check out their outfits on the back cover of 2112. Oh my God. Yes. Majestic. I love it. Speaking of album covers, let's take it back a few weeks to our episode on Dio. Oh. If you remember, Dio was in a band called Rainbow. And his last album with that band was called Long Live Rock and Roll. Indeed. The gatefold of that album is a large black and white photo of a concert crowd holding a big white banner that says Long Live Rock and Roll. Right. That's actually a photo of a Rush concert. What? Yeah. (laughs) The banner originally had Rush's name and the Starman logo on it, but they erased that and put the name of Rainbow's album on it and slapped it on the inside of their album cover. Oh. I don't know why they did that. (laughs) I mean, they probably saw the picture and thought, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. We don't have that. Let's just take this. The great thing, though, knowing that it's a Rush uh, picture, is that there's two women right in the front. It's like holy fuck the two women that it's went the to corns. it's the two women that went to the Rush concert in all of the 1970s and 80s. It's it's probably just like us in a former life. Probably we died after that concert. Yeah, came and that's back. why we came back like ten years later. Yeah, exactly. There you go. After the album was released, the boys set off for a tour that took them to the U.S., Canada, and for the first time ever, Europe. Oh wait, this is their first European tour. First European tour. Nice. They played over 140 shows between February 1976 and June 1977, with the shows in Toronto recorded and released on their double live album, All the World's a Stage, released in September of 76. I never understood, like, in the 70s and 80s and stuff, everybody was putting out live albums. Yeah. And I'm, just, I'm not a live like album person. I can be, but I have to be in the mood. For example... When you told me which albums we were going to be covering today, I was like, oh, thank God these are live albums. I'm going to skip them because there's a lot of music They have a lot of live albums, but they're really great live. They are great live. But also, if I'm going to listen to Rush live, I want to be there to see them. I don't want to listen to it without being able to see them. I've I've got a couple really good live albums that I'm like, nah, this fucking slaps. I don't even care. Yeah. But. I've watched a bunch of live shows on my TV mm. over COVID. Yeah. And they've been great. But um, there is something about not being there. Yeah. It gives you FOMO. Yeah. I would mm. just rather be there. I agree. Ever the workhorses, they immediately packed up and went to Wales to record A Farewell to Kings, released on September 1st, 1977. 
And this album was a slight departure for the band, but also a harbinger of things to come on successive records. Hmm. For the first time, we hear Rush feature keyboards in their songs. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah. Handing those duties to Getty, who somehow managed (laughs) to play bass and keys at the same time. Because he did a thing. Yeah, I'm... It's he he set up the keyboard basically in a way so he could play the keyboard with his feet while he played bass with his hands. Yeah, and move the microphone with his nose. Yep. I talked about it in the bassist appreciation episode. Yeah. I feel like there were keyboards on 2112 though. That's why I don't I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they weren't as heavily featured. Maybe, Maybe. they were experimented with but Maybe. not fully. <sighs> nah. I don't know. This is what I read in books, my people. So and this you read is in how... books and like it's a lot of music and it's easy to get kind of confused after you've listened to like most of Rush's discography in a day and be like, wait, was yeah. that that album or was that that Especially album? when you're reading multiple different books and listening Ugh. to a fuck ton of interviews and reading different articles, like you get a lot of different answers for things and it's hard to differentiate which one is the truth. So some of y'all might not realize how hard it is to go through all of that information. Yeah. And this was especially hard because the book that I was using primarily for our last episode just fucking shit the bed after (laughs) after that. And I'm like, this is book is useless. Um, I guess I'll go to this one. But this one is dense and very boring. Mm, That's Um, the worst. So I ended up relying heavily on interviews for this episode. Okay. And everybody got a different opinion. Everybody everybody, got something to say. And everybody got a different memory. So we definitely have a different memory. We weren't there. Yeah, exactly. Not even born. Not there yet. But the keyboards ended up giving Rush's sound a lushness and a robustness that made it sound like there were many more musicians than just three dudes. Oh, yeah. Prompting them to say that they sound like the world's smallest symphony orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Facts. And they they made a point of only bringing in instruments that they could play themselves. So, like, they didn't want to bring other musicians in because that other musician can play this one instrument really good. Mm -hmm. If they couldn't play it, they didn't want to bring it in because they wanted to be able to replicate the sound in concert and just... Make sure that it's just the three of them. That's fascinating. Yeah. Especially because, yeah, I remember when I was a kid, I thought Rush was like five or six people. Yeah. And then I and got older. I'm like, what do you mean there's three dudes? And that's why Neil Peart's drum kit kept growing and growing and growing and growing. And especially during this time, it got so fucking huge that he was literally behind a wall of instruments. Because like he was adding chimes and i'm not Mm -hmm. talking like a few chimes i'm talking like three rows of fucking chimes these are my light chimes these are my heavy chimes (laughs) (laughs) yes and like he added a glockenspiel and tubular bells and you know you You were not joking earlier i am not joking he literally brought all of those things in and added them to his drum kit he had like one of those little baby xylophones just in case. Like 18 ding, cowbells. Ding, 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 ding. Oh my yeah. God. This is my light cowbell. This is my heavy <laughs> cowbell. And this was the first time they found broader international success with the help of the song Closer to the Heart, Aww. which broke the top 40 in the UK. 
It's a great song. It's so good. Contrary to what you might believe from the title, it is not a love song. <laughs> I actually never really want, I, you know, yeah, I never really got love song vibe off of it. I don't really get love song vibe off of much of Neil's songs, period, because he's just not that kind of guy. I don't get love songs off of any Rush song. There's love songs. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. I can't think of them off the top of my head. But oh, you I'll don't say. I'll Weird. show them to you later. <laughs> Actually, yeah, Closer to the Heart always seems like kind of like a song about finding yourself and in independence. It's kind of like finding the love in what you do yeah. professionally. Oh. Like blacksmiths have to put heart into what they do or else it's not going to be right. It's They're not going to be proud of it. Right. You know, things like that. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. I like it. In a way, it is a love song for your craft. I love you, craft. <laughs> Beer. <laughs> and the movie. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And then they embarked on a nine-month tour of the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. And during at least part of the tour, they were playing with the band UFO. Have you ever heard of them? I, it sounds familiar. They're a... a f- lesser known english rock band from the 70s era i i i feel like if they have a song and you played it i'd be like oh okay that's what that's what i feel like i feel like ufo would be one of those bands that have a song yeah they do but i'll be damned if i can remember what it is fair enough but getty credits them with helping rush get out of the robe phase because UFO UFO ridiculed them relentlessly about the fucking robes and everything else about the band. Oh, they call- I'm sorry, UFO. Excuse What's your me? song? <laughs> what song did you have a big what, hit with? What What song was yours? Wait, oh, I'm I, sorry. Oh, you're the supporting oh, band. I'm sorry. I don't know her. I don't know her. I'd go backstage with my side boobs just hanging out, be like UF who? <laughs> who UFO? UFO, there UFO, we go. UFO, I did it. Yeah. <laughs> um. So they called Getty Glee and made fun of Neil's lyrics. And they even stuck a pair of slippers next to Getty's microphone and said, it goes perfect with your robe, Glee. I don't like these people. <laughs> they sound like assholes. I d- they sound like a bunch of mean bullies and I hate them. <laughs> For... Like, to his credit, Getty seemed like he just took it in stride I'm and sure thought it was did. funny. But I can see how it was, like, jocks making fun of the nerdy kids, you know? But again, who's got the last laugh? I'm pretty sure it's Rush. It's not UFO? Yeah. So only after touring with UFO, they went back into the studio to record their next album, Hemispheres. mm And Hemispheres was a longer production than their previous albums, taking all of June and July 1978 to record and then released on October 29th, 1978. As Getty puts it, Hemispheres was the album that broke the camel's back when it came to long, complicated songs. Ah, Well, shit. (laughs) To this day, the longest song award goes to 2112. Mm -hmm. But like the 2112 album, the first side is one long song. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's um, it's hemispheres. It's like it's like something something hemispheres, right? S- Cygnus X one book two hemispheres. Yes, I can't remember the Cygnus part. 
every time I see it, every time I go to read it, my brain reads it as Chungus. <laughs> so I've been calling this song Big Chungus. <laughs> you know what? Maybe they'd appreciate that. Or maybe they wouldn't. So <laughs> Big Chungus here is 18 minutes long. And it's, I mean, that is a big it's chungus. It's a big chungus, right? That is. <laughs> it's 18 minutes long and is broken down into six chapters. But the lyrics and themes and structures were far more complex than anything they'd written to that point. Mm-hmm. And you're probably wondering why it's called Book Two Hemispheres. Yeah, I was like, where's Book One? It's because there's a big chungus Book One. <laughs> At the end of Farewell to Kings. So Farewell oh. to Kings. So a Big Chungus book one ends a Farewell to Kings and Big Chungus two <laughs> begins. Hemispheres. Hemispheres. All right. You know what? Yeah. I can appreciate that. They're yeah. planning ahead. And also the naked dude in front of the star mm-hmm. for 2112, he makes a, a recurrence. He's on like the full frontal hemisphere. No, you'd still only see his butt. I, yeah, no, I guess I didn't mean like full frontal dick. I just mean like he's really like in that picture. Like 2112, I see him, but I feel like there's a lot going on. But Hemispheres, there's not a lot going on. Oh, his just tight ass is right there. His tight little butt. Tight little boot. Just right there. Tight little booty. He's got a great butt. He looks fantastic. Yeah, honestly. Good looking man. Yeah. So La Villa Strangiato and Exercise in Self Indulgence on side two, though shorter in length, was just as complex. It was based on a series of nightmares and dreams Alex was having during their tour for A Farewell to Kings. Oh, I bet because he's being bullied every fucking day. <laughs> it was. This is all inspired by UFO. UFO? Mm. At least they did something. Yeah. With their fucking lives. At least La Villa Strangiato came out of this bullshit tour with UFO. Yeah. We got that. Yeah, that, that song slaps. The fucking guitar work on this mm. is mm. shit your pants fucking fantastic. Mm. Oh, yeah, like just that opening, just yeah. And I believe he took a a part from a famous jazz song. Yes, I love that part. Oh my god, which also just reminds me of cartoons. Yes, that's all I can think of are cartoons, but it's fantastic. And I was like, and he blends it in there like perfectly. Like, how do you do that? How you do these things? How you do that? Although this song is completely instrumental, it's broken down into twelve chapters, each chapter corresponding to different occurrences in Alex's dreams. Wow. Shit. Yeah. Also, I wouldn't have gotten 12 parts out of that, but it's fine. It's great. It's good. They were determined to record La Villa Strangiato live and in one take, (sighs) which was a near impossible task. Like how long? It's like eight or 10 minutes. Between there, somewhere in there. Yeah. It's a long time to be playing such a complicated song. Yeah. 12 fucking moments. I don't know how (laughs) to how to explain how complicated the finger work on this song is it's insane i guess the bassist and the guitarist both have some good finger work going on indeed Mm -hmm. they were running themselves ragged recording hemispheres 
putting pressure on themselves to be as experimental and complex as they could in their writing. Combine that with increasingly late nights, probably not eating right, probably drinking and smoking too much, and not taking any time off. The atmosphere became nuts. The atmosphere in that hemisphere, nuts. Nuts. They had given themselves such a monumental task writing and recording this album that they may as well have been trying to carry a mountain on their backs. Mm. Yeah, it was way too fucking much. They tried so hard with La Villa Strangiato and were so close to getting it down in one take, but they just couldn't get it exactly right. They spent 11 days recording 40 takes of the song before they gave up. And in the end, they had to piece it together from three different takes. They spent more time recording that one song than they did recording the entirety of Fly By Night. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I I mean, I'm not surprised how any of that played out. Yeah. Because, yeah, a song that long, that intricate, trying to get that one take. Can you just imagine? Like... Maybe you're like almost towards the end. You're like, you we got two minutes. We got to, we're so fucking close. And like somebody like just misses a string. There's just one beat off and everyone just stops. Yep. And they're like, oh, we're so fucking close to lose. We need to take, take a break. We got to take a break. Everybody go take a fucking break. Yeah. Go drink some drink, smoke some weed, take a shower. I don't know what you got to fucking do. <laughs> take a fucking break or else we're all going to rip each other's faces off. Mm-hmm. I would anyway. I would have been there. Yeah. I don't know about these nice Canadian boys, but I would have been there. Hemispheres became a masterclass in each individual instrument. Mm. These spectacularly complex songs absolutely schooled people and left jaws dropping. Like in the documentary, um, Behind the Lighted Stage, Beyond mm-hmm. the Lighted Stage, um, what's his face from Pantera? Oh. The drummer? Fuck, I can't think of his name. Vinnie I know who you mean. Vinnie Paul. Vinnie Paul. Yes. Vinnie Paul was talking and he was like, yeah, like, La Villa Strangiato is like the, like, pinnacle of what you could, of Rush covers you could do. Oh, and he's shit. like, yeah, you know how to play Spirit of Radio, but can you play La Villa Strangiato? Oh That's kind like, of adorable. Is this what, like, Rush nerds did. Oh, I love it. Oh, that's so cute. That's really sweet. However, the writing was a bit beyond their own capabilities. It was one thing to write a complicated song knowing you can record take after take in a studio until you get it right, but you only have one chance live to nail it, and if you fuck up, people are going to notice. So they kind of fucked themselves over, and the subsequent tour left them dead-ass tired. Oh. Because, like, they wrote such amazing music that, like, it was almost more than they could do. It was too good. It was too good. <laughs> Sorry, return, or, uh, Hemispheres is just too good. Seriously. And that's when they said, okay, that's it. We're never writing music like this ever again. They're going to say they're never writing music again. I was like, well, that's not true. No. That they're never going to write music that stupid, needlessly complicated anymore. They got real Icarus about it. And they're like, all right, all right, we made a mistake. Our wings are melting. It's really hot in here. so fucking hot. We need to chill out. So this was the turning point in the the band's trajectory. Writing, recording, and touring for Hemispheres burned them out so much that they had to reevaluate what they were doing with the band and their personal lives. Yeah. Alex already had two kids with his wife, 
And Neil and Getty were starting families with their partners, so they made a conscious decision to take the band in a less all-encompassing direction. Good for them. I mean, honestly, at this point, the level of success that they're seeing, like... They can do that. They can they afford can to do that. They can take a breather. It's fine. That's why it was really important to them to ditch England in favor of recording their next album in Quebecois. Oh, of course. Much closer to their families near Toronto. This eased the stress of being away from loved ones while recording, making studio time much easier and far less stressful. And not recording another epic, yeah, perfect song. That, that helped. Yeah. That helped a lot. So Permanent Waves was released on January 14th, 1980, and was by far the most accessible Rush album up to that point. Up to that point. I'm guessing because they were just in better moods. Yeah. Hemispheres was great, but it was dark. It's heavy. Yeah. It's it's dense. Very. It's a thick shake. And Permanent Waves was like the exact opposite of that. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, this is... Yeah. Maybe... Lighter. Maybe that was because they were influenced by the radio-friendly but still weird bands they were listening to at the time. So they were listening to stuff like Ultravox, The Police, Talking Heads, and other new wave bands, prompting them to bring in more synthesizers and make songs a little more accessible to mass audiences. They're like, this is Rush going pop. Basically. (laughs) Neil especially loved The Police at this time and wanted to incorporate reggae into their music. Which is why there's a little reggae breakdown in the spirit of radio. Oh, I always like wondered, like, did they mean that? Cute, but did they mean to do this? (laughs) Like, what is the point here? It's just kind of like a nod to the police. I actually thought it was more of a Led Zeppelin-y kind of, because they have like Deer Maker and uh, yeah, I would say those are more like funk and soul, not really reggae. Could be, could be. So that song could be seen as Rush's mainstream breakout hit because that is where their progressive rock leanings meld perfectly with the mainstream. Yeah. It reached number 13 in the UK, 22 in Canada, and 51 in the US. And today it is still their highest charting single in the UK. Huh. I thought you going to say the US. No. No. What am I saying? I know what it'll probably be. Yeah. We also have the song Free Will on this album. I will choose free will. Which I don't really think got a lot of radio airplay back then, though I know it does now. Oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> I think it's just great that even now in 2021, let alone in 1980, a song that is blatantly atheistic, touting yeah. freedom of self with a bunch of odd time signatures gets airplay at all, even if it is only on classic rock stations. <laughs> but that means Rush made intellectual rock accessible. Yeah. And philosophical rock. Or it just fucking slaps. It just fucking slaps. It can be all of those things. And on a side note, at the end of Free Will, Getty sings the bridge in the highest part of his range. Oh, Jesus. This would be the last time Getty sings in that shrieky, shrill register. Oh. After this album, you don't hear that. He'd been singing like that since their first album, so halting that shifted the band's sound to something a bit more serious. Huh. And a bit more mellow. Interesting. Yeah. I huh, didn't yeah. notice that. That was the cutoff. He's like, nah. You still have made a choice. I mean, he's getting up That's there. High. That's high. He's getting older. For a gentleman. Yeah, he's getting older at that point. Like, he can't keep singing like that forever. Mm-mm. He'd fucking blow out his vocal cords in no time. 
but don't think that just because they were getting big hits now that they abandoned long multi-act songs. What? The album closes with the track Natural Science, which clocks in at over nine minutes long and consists of three movements. They're like, hey, we still got it. Yeah. The first act contains sounds of splashing water and seagulls, and it sounds like Getty is singing in an echo chamber. But the echo and the water sounds were actually natural sounds they captured while Getty was singing outside near mountains and water. Oh, So nice and sweet. That's so nice and sweet. <laughs> and Quebecois. Quebecois. <laughs> and Permanent Waves was a huge step in a new direction, but it was really just a bridge to their next album, Moving Pictures. Mm, yes. Moving Pictures was released February 12th, 1981, and God Damn it, it's a banger. Every every song's a fucking Every fucking single one. Banger. It is a perfect album. That is, M- Moving Pictures is 100% a perfect album. Yes. Oh, God. We got Tom Sawyer. Mm-hmm. We got Red Barquetta. Mm. We got YYZ. We got Limelight. And we got all them delicious Rush songs. Tasty, that was Red Barquetta. He says Red Barchetta in the song, but that is not how it is pronounced. Oh. It's a, it's an Italian car. It's Red Barchetta. Oh, it's Red Bruschetta. Yeah. Like you would say Bruschetta. Because it's CH. You say kit. But now i to start saying Red Bruschetta. Red Bruschetta. <laughs> that sounds delicious. <laughs> I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Do you got any that Red Bruschetta? <laughs> Uh, but you, all those songs are perfect. Yes. You may have figured out by now that Neil has a predilection for writing songs about freedom and self-awareness and what? individualism. What? I don't know why. He's like, wake up, sheeple. <laughs> <laughs> he should have just named them all wake up, sheeple. <laughs> just 25 fucking albums of wake up, sheeple. <laughs> are you awake yet? Wake up, sheeple. This is Wake Up, Sheeple, book 77. <laughs> Big Chongus, you awake yet? <laughs> yep. Perfect. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Tom Sawyer is the pinnacle of all of these things. He wrote the song with his friend, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, Pai Dubois? Pai Dubois. Pai Dubois? I go with Dubois. See, I don't know what to go with because my aunt's last name is Dubois, and we say Dubois. Oh. But every other fancy person on this planet says Dubois. Well, I guess now you just have to make a choice. Yeah. You need to make a choice. Do you want to be fancy? I guess his first name could be Pierre. Pierre Dubois. Pierre Dubois. You know what? Let's make him fancy. Let's have the audience weigh in. How do you think it's pronounced? <laughs> Text one to zero zero seven three if you think it's the fancy one. Text Big Chongus <laughs> if you think it's Big Chongus. <laughs> so yeah, he wrote it with a uh, Pierre Dubois, mm. one of the very few times an outsider gets songwriting credit on a Rush song. So Pierre Dubois. I'm going to say it exactly like that every time. I like it, though. It's so fancy. He actually wrote the original lyrics. After a bit of reworking from Neil, they presented a story of a modern-day rebel, free-spirited and strong-willed. He's a mean, mean guy. (laughs) I think he's saying mean, 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 mean pride. 
Oh, are they saying mean, mean guy? I don't think it's mean, mean pride. It's like, today's Tom Sawyer's mean, mean guy. Close. And I thought they were saying that a lot for but a they long are, time. But they are saying, catch the spirit. Catch, catch the, the spit. <laughs> sure. I don't know. I mean, what else could he be saying? I don't know. Exactly. I don't want to catch anyone's spit. That's you're gross. You're gonna because you he's a corona. rebel. Well, you, they didn't have corona back then. They did, just not this corona. Remember? <laughs> I remember. Huh. So the lyrics get a little muddled, and even Neil and Getty admit they don't exactly know what the fuck most of the lyrics mean. They got real high. Oh, somebody got high. Somebody did. Getty has even commented that the fact that the song is so popular confuses the hell out of him. <laughs> It doesn't make sense that it would be popular. There's confusing lyrics, a five-minute runtime, different time signatures, but with that futuristic keyboard riff, a sick guitar solo, and catchy hook, it was bound to get airplay. It's the fucking keyboard. It's the keyboard. Yes. God, you know what? I don't give a fuck. Tom Sawyer still slaps. Yeah. I can hear that song a million times on the classic rock station. I'm still like, nah, I'm here for it. And we constantly talk about how Getty Lee is an amazing bass player. One of the absolute best, if not the best. Mm. And that is completely true. But people don't give him credit for his keyboard abilities. Seriously. Like, he is really good at keyboards. And he was really into keyboards. He was playing Moog keyboards before a fuck ton of people were. Oh, before, like, it was cool to play Moog keyboards? Oh, way before it was cool. Hipster Keddy Lee in his skinny jeans and his glasses. <laughs> and his kimono. Yeah, his kimono. <laughs> and his yeah, aviators. Yeah, I was just playing uh, some fucking Moog keyboards for anybody else even knew what they were. My Oberyn it's you know it's new nobody else had that that's that's exactly that's exactly what it yeah and red barquetta is another beloved song by many a rush fan mm. and in it we are transported to a 2112 like future yeah where the protagonist takes his uncle's barquetta out for joy rides under the watchful eye of a controlling government that forbids car ownership you see a theme with his lyrics i right? i do but also like I don't know, I was way more into the cave tar than I am, like, the stolen <laughs> car. I mean, Red Barquetta is a really good song. Oh, though. Red Barquetta. I never knew it was about this. Yeah. I just thought also, it slapped. Oh, my God. I totally forgot to say this in the beginning. I have to correct myself. Oh. Because I totally did pronounce Getty's real last name wrong. Oh, fuck. It is Wine Rib. Fuck me. <laughs> Give it to me, baby. Do you mean wine rib? Because you said wine rib. I said wine yeah. rib. It's wine rib. Wait, now I'm confused. You know what? Whatever. Let's just keep going. <laughs> we were both wrong. It's wine rib. Not ween rib. Not wine rib. Ween rib. Wine rib. Wine rib. Holy fuck, I'm getting myself confused. We could do this again at the beginning of the next <laughs> Who's episode. Who's on first? <laughs> <laughs> so Red Barquetta flows into YYZ. Mm. Probably the band's most famous instrumental piece. Look, I think most people from our generation know it from fucking Guitar Hero <laughs> as Probably. one of the hardest songs. It was it's like that and difficult. Dragon Force were the hardest songs to play. <laughs> like even on easy mode, they're like, we're not. I mean, like what is easy? It's never gonna be easy. No. 
It's not. Yeah. In case you're wondering what the fuck YYZ means, it's the IATA Airport Identification Code for the Toronto Pearson International Airport. So when you get your tags, those big long white tags that Mm -hmm. go on your luggage and it has code on it for the airport, Mm -hmm. um, YYZ is going to be on that luggage tag if you're in the Toronto Pearson International Airport. So that was all right. That was always like a nice welcome home thing when they would come home from tour. That would be on their luggage, and they'd be like, "Oh, we're going home." Oh, all right. That's really cute. Yeah. And rounding out side one is "Limelight," a song that Neil wrote about grappling with Rush's fame and him being recognized. Oh, he was such an achingly shy person that it was truly painful for him to interact with fans. Right. He didn't understand how people could revere and admire him so fervently, and it made him so uncomfortable that he couldn't handle it. He wanted nothing to do with it. Oh, poor So Neil. he decided very early on that he was just going to remove himself from these situations altogether, not because he had any ill will towards Rush fans, mm. but because the literal physical pain it caused him was too much to handle. I mean, you know, some people just aren't that introverted where yeah. it's just like, look, I love you and appreciate you, but please let me do this from like a hotel room up there and I'll look at you down there right. and you won't know that I'm up there, but I'll know you're down there. And I'll be like, thank you. And he he would do interviews with Alex and Getty. Mm-hmm. Um, in their earlier days, but I think he gradually just kind of stopped doing interviews too. Yeah, and he was always by himself backstage. Just he's in his head a lot. It's, it's fine. fine. It's fine. Yeah. You know what? And like he got along great with his bandmates, and that's really all that fucking matters. Exactly. That's all I give a shit about. Yeah, like great. I, I totally understand that because I would feel the same way sometimes. Sometimes it is very physically painful for me to talk to other people. Not my friends, just people I don't know very well. So I get it. But I thought it was kind of bittersweet what Alex said about his solo in Limelight. He said he loved it because it was melancholy, which matched the emotions Neil put into the lyrics. And I can't remember which book I read it in, but there are some points in the lyrics when he uses first person narrative and others where he changes it to one as in one must put up barriers to keep oneself Self intact. intact. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was one must put up barriers to keep oneself inside. Intact. That makes way more sense. <laughs> I gotta keep myself in. I better put barriers oh, up. Man, they're all... Get them back in. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Getty suggested changing the wording from I to one... So that it didn't come off as too harsh to the fans. Oh, yeah. And, like, that's something that they were really good at was, whereas, like, some other bands that we've talked about, if somebody brought in lyrics and somebody was like, I think you should change this word to this, it would cause a riff that would break up the band because egos and people can't work together and people can't collaborate like normal humans. Mm -hmm. These three guys were, like... (laughs) It's almost disgusting how easily they work together. Mm. So, like, Neil would bring his lyrics to Alex and Getty and have them read them and, like, try and figure out what he's saying and get the feeling and everything. And they would come back to him and be like, I really think that you should change this part and say something like this or make it mean this or something. Hmm. And he would genuinely be thankful 
for their input and be like, yeah, you might be right. Let me go back and rewrite this and then bring it back to them. It was like they actually listen to each other. (gasps) What's that? Oh, my God. They might be just like each other's muses, too, where it's like, you know, we are all creative people. We can come together and make each other's work better. Yeah. They come to each other with great work and then like, hey, you want to make this just like a little bit better, though? Yeah. Like truly collaborative partners. That's sweet. That's what it should. That's what a band should be. I don't think we have ever encountered that before. We must have. I, I don't know. I drank away the last four years. Who fucked knows? if I know. Neil wrote Limelight before the release of Moving Pictures when Rush was getting attention, but nowhere near as much as after its release. Oh, yeah, I bet. They were now getting recognized on the street. Fans were coming up to them left and right, wanting autographs or photos or whatever. They weren't private citizens anymore. Mm, Neil already... Oh, no. Neil already had his reckoning with it, but Getty and Alex hadn't. Oh, shit. I mean, I guess that's the one good thing about Neil writing Limelight and realizing who he is and stuff. He's like, all right, I've come to terms. Oh, fuck. We have to do this, too. Fuck, fuck, fuck. I thought this was just a Neil thing. Yeah, so fame was something they had to get used to as well. Alex, for his part, is a gregarious person that loves talking to fans all day, every day. Okay, I could vibe with that. Alex will give you all the time in the world. But Getty was somewhere between Neil and Alex. Okay. He was also the most recognizable member of Rush, so he had to figure out his level of comfort when it came to fan interactions. Mm. His reckoning came after a show in Germany at the end of a long tour. He had rented a car and he and his wife were going to go on a holiday and drive around Europe and just get away from the grueling tour that they had just finished up. Yeah. As he was pulling away from the venue, he encountered a throng of Italian fans waiting at the end of the driveway. And he was like, I fucking can't. I just I cannot right now. I can't deal with fans right now. I just don't want to deal with this yeah because that's like you're officially like oh it's like when you leave work and you're like i'm going on vacation and somebody like calls you like i know you just left i know you're gonna go on vacation but like i just can you come back in the office for one last thing yeah it was just an especially bad day it took forever to get over you like the printer wouldn't work Mm -hmm. somebody was asking you questions every five minutes and you just wanted finally escape and they're like Oh, did you finish that one report? Because I'm going to need that before you go on vacation. And you just have a mental breakdown. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. So he stopped the car. He backed up, turned the car around and left through another less congested exit. Smart. He did it. He immediately felt guilty as fuck about it. (laughs) Even though he was fried and at the fed up stage of the tour, He felt like an asshole for rejecting people that just wanted to tell them they love his music. Oh. So from then on, he made a point of always giving his fans the time and attention that they wanted. Even though he wasn't comfortable at first, he made himself get good at dealing with fans. That way, no one ended up feeling like an asshole. Him or the fans. But they're Nazis, right, Ashley? (laughs) But they're Nazis, guys. They're Satanists, too. Ugh, fuck Barry. Of course, Moving Pictures was hugely successful and is probably their most popular album. Mm. It went platinum only four weeks after its release. It is currently five times platinum, I think. Shit. And because they had actual radio airplay and several popular singles, their audiences doubled. 
They closed out the tour for moving pictures with three sold out shows at Maple Leaf Gardens, which is apparently a big deal. I don't know this place. It sounds like it sounds a fancy. big Canadian deal. It sounds like I briefly looked it up and it sounds like it is the equivalent of our Troy Savings Bank Music Hall. Oh, it's bougie. Yeah, I think it's I think it's bougie. It looks bougie on the outside. Maybe everyone gets served those maple leaf cookies. Ooh, those are delicious. I mean, if you like maple, they're I great. Love them. So Russia now on the radar. Everyone's like, yeah, this Prague thing is pretty great. I wonder what Russia going to do next. And Russia's like, fuck, fuck, fuck. No one cared before. <laughs> Even though that was their seventh album. Yeah. A lot of people had just now heard of them. But these guys were on a trajectory and had big plans for their next album. Mm. Signals was released on September 9th, 1982. And when they started recording earlier that year, they knew they wanted to do something different. Mm. They could have easily made another moving pictures, capitalizing on more condensed prog songs, but that's not Rush's bag. Nope. This marked the beginning of another musical shift where they abandoned soaring guitar solos for that looming instrument that defined the 80s. Keyboards. The keyboard. Like, literally looming. Like, Getty's, like, stage outfit, like of keyboards was gigantic he just had an entire wall of keyboards he's like this is my key this is my light keyboard this is my heavy keyboard and back then like moo keyboards were literal cabinets yeah like tall ass fucking cabinets i don't think he brought the moogs out on tour with him but damn they're big it was like an operator's board with like plugs and shit i thought like because eventually like at some point in the 80s they do condense them don't they yeah but in the beginning they were quite they were fucking gigantic okay rush had incorporated keyboards into their music years ago allowing the boys to create that epic atmospheric sound typical of their earlier albums it was important, but also relegated to the background, and Getty's keyboard setup was fairly small, as we said before, and he was focused on more on bass, and that changed with signals. Mm. Keyboards were front and center, literally smacking you in the face as soon as you put the record on. The opening of Subdivisions, Subdivisions. <laughs> a song about being socially outcast in a suburban town that wants nothing but your conformity, is synthy gold, classically <laughs> 80s. Yet the perfect conduit for Alex's hard rock guitar licks. Yeah. No. Subdivisions. Again. Slaps. Subdivisions. Subdivisions. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love it. All, but like the lyrics make me kind of sad because all I can picture is a dorky, skinny Neil pair going to school and getting picked on. I know. I just feel like a lot of this. I bet Ann Rand just really spoke to him because he's just like, God, he got picked fucking picked on for no good reason like he's like yeah i like nerdy shit who cares you know what i bet he was pissed like come like the 2010s it's like oh it's cool to like cool Lord to be star cool wars to be geeky D oh, is hey. awesome and he's like i will fucking rage <laughs> hell kimonos are cool again the, i'm setting fires that's it you parrot i'm done yep So yeah, it was perfect for Alex's guitar licks, but there's a curious lack of solos Mm. and signals, especially for a band who practically bled them. That's true. That's a good point. 
Despite the changes, Signals did quite well. The song New World Man, which was written and recorded in an unprecedented two days, <laughs> was number one in Canada and number 10 in the U.S., the sure. highest position any of their songs ever got in the U.S. I don't even know that song either. I was going to say, I'm like, I don't really know that song. I don't that know that song. one. I don't know her. By November of 1982, it went platinum, despite some critics deploring the heavy use of keyboards at the expense of Alex's guitar solos. Is this their cough? Is this their Saint cough, Anger? Rolling Stone cough. Oh, it was Rolling Stone. No, I just, just meant assholes. like, is is this like their Saint Anger album? <laughs> Did no, Neil except- Peart take all of the fucking snares out of his <laughs> snare drums? It's like dick, 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 dick. Subdivisions. <laughs> He just smacked his drumsticks on an empty propane tank. Ting, 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 ting. Subdivisions. <laughs> uh, song called New World Man. Ting, 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 ting. <laughs> With a reggae beat in the background. <laughs> the critics didn't deter them when they went back into the studio to record their next effort, Grace Under Pressure. In fact, they doubled down again. Oh. Wouldn't that be like tripling down? I know. They That's double- the triple down. Then they quadrupled down. Well, quintupled no. down? I, I think just tri- I think just triple down. But triple like, dog dare you. Like they doubled down and with Grace under pressure and then they doubled down again and then they got really bad haircuts and even stupider outfits. Like Wait, how do you get st- You know what? I actually am not totally against the kimono thing. And no. in fact, I might start doing that. And that's 70s rush. This is 80s rush. Oh, cuz now we're in 80s. Now we're in the 80s. And I'm sorry. Oh, here I we go. I have to talk about their 80s get-ups. Getty's hair it was not defied gravity. I yes, that is one thing it did. And it was this weird 80s mullet. Yeah. Like, you know, the kind where like he had so much hair and it was just like a big poof everywhere. And he had so many bangs. Oh, you know what? It kind of reminds me of Stephen Perry from Journey. I think Gettys was way bigger. Oh, no, it was. But that's the thing. I I wonder if he saw Stephen Perry and he's like, (laughs) I can do this better. I can do that. Like, I never knew someone could have a haircut where literally half of their hair is just bangs. (laughs) Yeah. But I think who he looked like was the night hob from the first never ending story. Oh, I'm going to have to look that up now. He was the one that had the flying bat. And he, he was friends with the guy with the snail. Oh. Right? Am I not? Am I wrong? I'm going to have to look at this again, but. I, I I cannot confirm nor deny. He looked like the fucking night hob. <laughs> and they definitely spent time at the Miami Vice School for wearing t-shirts under sports jackets. Oh, did they ever? And However, mm-hmm. Alex pulled that off. Oh, yeah. Alex definitely kind of fit right into the 80s. Mm. Like, he he already had a slot waiting there for him. Like, I'm sorry. I went from, like, looking at Getty to be like... But Alex, though. Hey, Alex. <laughs> Have you been here the whole time? I like your turtleneck. I like that. I like that yeah. blazer. Yeah. yeah. Getty definitely wore oversized parachute pants with white kids. <laughs> yep. And Alex never met a turtleneck he didn't fall in love with. <laughs> and I think Neil was probably the best dressed and best quaffed during this shaky mm. time in fashion history. He was well quaffed. Yeah. He just had that straight up short haircut. Yep. 
no facial hair, usually a button-down shirt with, like, the rolled-up sleeves, yeah. short sleeves. Yep. He looked good. But again, like I said to you last night, uh, did they look at Huey Lewis in the news? We're like, that's it, that's it. <laughs> that's it. We got to do that, but, like, ramp it up. Yeah, like, times 100. Yeah, exactly. But because they were, like, practically obscuring him, he couldn't interact with Alex as much as he could before. Oh, no. He was kind of stuck behind the wall of keyboards. Yeah. So people were starting to notice that and notice the abundance of synth. And they were starting to wonder when they were going to go back to the guitar solos. Like, okay, this is fun. Can we get back to the rock show now? But like I said, the double downing was initiated. No. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week. God damn it. I want yeah. to know where it goes for the quadruple down. Um, Yeah, it's it's going to go to places. I want to know. Well, you're going to have to wait. Fine. <laughs> sorry. So sorry. I am sorry, too. You're a hoser. <laughs> you're a real hoser. Take off hoser. Eh, I don't want to. Or it's fair. <laughs> It's gonna be sh- it's gonna be a big in next week. So yeah, wow, fuck. Lots I feel like it's done. Been big in. It's been real. Uh, <laughs> it's a big chongus of a fucking series. <laughs> this is the biggest chongus I've ever seen. <laughs> yep, big chongus is kind of the 2021 I've been having. Real big chongus 20, of the year. 2021 big chongus. I don't even know what that means. Nobody oh. does catch the mystery. Catch the spit? I think it's catch the drift. I don't know. <laughs> We're going to go. All right. all right. We need to go. We need to go look up some fucking Rush lyrics. Thank you all so much for listening. We love you and appreciate you. And, you know, hope you guys have been enjoying uh, the Rush. The story the rush, of rush. these three nice Canadian boys. Rush. Rush, hurry, hurry, lover, come to me. Rush, rush. <laughs> Don't get me started on that song. I know. I'll fucking it's, sing the whole damn just, thing. We're just going. We're going places here. Also, like <laughs> I don't know. I had some high ABV beers. I'm drunk now. It's fine. <laughs> but yes, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you're new, checking things out, you can find more at our website, rockcandypodcast.com. Other episodes, you can find our social meds, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And uh, yeah, that's our stuff for now. We still have our, our merchandise up too. We do still have merch in case you want to buy some cool merch. It's on uh, T Public. Yes, the just public search, of teas. Just search for Rock Candy Podcast, you'll find our stuff. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's that's what we got for now. But uh, coming on next week because uh. Ooh, we gonna be wrapping things up. It's a it's a tight fucking story. Yeah. No, lots, you know what? We're not fucking around next week. We're gonna be real of, serious because there's a lot of ground to cover. A lot of ground to cover. A lot of albums to talk about. A lot of personal happenings. Mm. Uh, good and bad. Okay. Might make you cry. I might cry. We're probably gonna cry. I'm probably gonna cry. I mean, why not? We're getting older and hormones are weird. So like, yeah, and we're I'm, probably gonna cry. I'm real connected to these three bastards now. So. They are kind of it's... adorable. I love them. I do too. We love you, Rush. Fuck yeah. you, Barry. Maybe we both can be Getty Corns. All right. I'm just, I'll allow it. We're Rush Corns. Rush Corns. Rush Corns. <laughs> corn, <sighs> corn Rush. Corn no, Rush. No. 
We'll figure it out. We'll get there. But uh, yeah, until next week, <laughs> party on Ashley. Party on Maggie. And party on you could raise the kids out there. Real big chongus for Neil Parrot. Oh How about God. that? Does that work? Yeah. Yeah. Neil, Neil Chongus. <laughs> chongus Parrot. There you go.